with changing things around a bit, um, it obviously didn't get communicated that I was going to be preaching on the whole of Nehemiah 5 today. So let me just read the, the first section of that to you, and then we'll get down to it as well. Uh, that's not a reflection on anybody that's... Um, it's just obviously my inability to communicate that properly. <laughs> now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. Uh, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Some things never change. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could, not, they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our, and to avoid the approach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my own men uh, are also lending to people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also uh, the interest that you have charged them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out my, the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of their homes and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied and the whole assembly said amen and praise the lord and the people did as they had promised and lord i just pray that you'd add understanding to the reading of your word not enough to buy the basics of life getting further and further into debt food security it's a new word isn't it food shortages mortgagee sales to cover debt homelessness, excessive greed and exploitation of the poor, crippling taxes, uh, debentured labour, that's slavery, and sex trafficking. These are the issues that face Nehemiah in the reading that we had this morning. And sadly, they could have easily been picked from the headlines around the world today. They could be injustices in our world, in our country, in our city, and in our community. Nehemiah had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to restore the city, but that was part of a deeper, vast vision of the restoration of Jerusalem as a place where God's name was worshipped, and the Jews as a people 
reflected God's grace, God's mercy, and God's justice in how they lived, which it included economically as well. So as he builds the wall, he has to tackle these glaring injustices in the community. Now, you probably noticed that we've jumped a couple of chapters in Nehemiah's story, and I apologize for that. On February the 19th, we have a combined service here at 10 a.m., where we will be welcoming and commissioning our new national PCANZ intern. Uh, you remember Anosa? Well, we've got another one, which is great. Her name is Pauline Hampshire. And I recently, and I really feel that Nehemiah 3, where Nehemiah organises all the people to build the wall, would be appropriate for that service. So we're juggling things around to accommodate that. Okay? And as a church, we believe that God has given us a vision of not being in decline, but becoming and being a flourishing Christian community with a mission of connecting people with God and with one another. And in 2023, we are refocusing ourselves around seeing that vision become more and more a reality. And at the beginning of the year, to achieve that, we're turning to the scriptures and in particular to the character of Nehemiah for wisdom and counsel to help us in that process. And we pray, speak to us, God, through your word. So let's have a look at the text and then you know, we'll wrestle with it, understanding it, and then we'll see what it has to say to us here and now. We understand the text and then we apply the text. Let's have a look at the story so far. Uh, and because we've jumped around a bit, I hope you'll excuse the spoilers. And in, in particular, I apologise to Lorne, who's preaching on Nehemiah 4 next week. As I, and as I was preparing this message today, the first line of the first commentary I read really hit me. Uh, Raymond Brown in the Bible Speaks today says, as a leader, Nehemiah confronts a different problem each chapter. And I thought, boy, leadership can really feel like that, you know, just confronting different problems. I guess what gives us hope is that Nehemiah deals with each of these problems and they do not stop him and the people from moving from a vision to reality. They do not stop him from guiding God's people into God's preferred future for them. And it's what actually makes him a good role model for us as a Christian and as for leadership. You know, he addresses those things, faces those problems, and achieves his vision and mission in a God-honoring way. Nehemiah's first problem is the desolation of Jerusalem. Its walls were broken down and its gates burned by fire. The people were in a desperate state. But he's in exile all the way in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. So he earnestly and consistently prays and begins to see how he can be part of God's answer. In the second chapter, he has to convince King Artaxerxes to change his policy and to allow the rebuilding of Jerusalem to happen and to send Nehemiah to oversee it, which he manages to accomplish by God's grace and favour. Then, spoiler alert, uh, he has to work out how to rebuild the walls, and he galvanises the people to work together to do it. And in the passage that Lorne's looking at next week, he deals with external opposition. That threatens to halt the rebuilding. 
And he addresses that in a way that allows the people to feel safe to keep building. Now, he has to deal with an internal problem, an economic injustice, which actually is exacerbated by the uh, behaviour of the people in the community and the focus, actually, of building the wall. And the passage is split into three parts. The first paragraph, Nehemiah is, is confronted with the problem. And then in verse 6 to 13, we see how he deals with it. And finally, in the third section, we have a reflection back by Nehemiah. You know, looking back at his time, those 12 years that he had acted as a governor uh, in Judah and seeing how he had acted in a, in a right manner. And there are three distinct groups who have issues with their fellow Jews in this passage. Uh, and each group is introduced by the phrase, others, others, yet others, still others, in verse 2, 3, and 4. And at first they are introduced collectively as men and their wives raised a great outcry. You know, the people had committed themselves to building the wall and on the whole the men might have been expected to be fed on the building site. But the impact uh, which the wives saw was on their families. You know, the families were being adversely affected. They were concerned about their children. What you could call and what we do call in our day child poverty. The first group were people who did not own their own land and made a living by labouring. And while it was only an, uh, an eight-week period working on the wall, this exacerbated their economic woes for the families. They were under strain. The second group owned land, but were at risk at losing it as they had to put it up for collateral against loans to simply buy the essentials. This isn't mortgaging their house so they can buy a TV. This is mortgaging their house so that they can buy food. And we're told there's a famine. And adverse weather conditions weren't helping. <laughs> we can relate to that, right? Yeah. And the focus of building and being away from the farm was also probably having a bad impact. And there's a sense that the land was being forfeited, that the rich who gave the loans were now accumulating more and more land. You know, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. The third group were not only struggling with making ends meet, they were falling badly into debt to pay the Persian king's land tax. And we know from history that the Persians taxed very heavily to support their lavish palace building and campaigns to pacify and conquer other lands. In fact, um, when uh, Alexander uh, captured Susa, he was amazed at the mountains of gold and silver that were there. It seems that uh, the wealth of all the regions and of Judah were finding their way into Persian pockets. Not only was land under threat uh, of it being taken, uh, but when they could no longer pay, their children were being sold into slavery. In Jewish law, debt slavery was permissible, but it was for a period of six years, and then they had to be set free. But the implication here is that, that even that wasn't being uh, adhered to. And, of course, the concern about daughters was that there may be a sexual element in that slavery. 
In Jewish law also, women slaves could not be redeemed or brought back. But there were a lot of laws that were there to protect them against abuse. But it seems that there were definitely grave concerns in that area. When Nehemiah hears this, we see that he reacts. He is filled with anger, indignation at this injustice. But he takes time, however, to ponder the situation. And we note the legal language here, that he brings an accusation against the nobles and the officials. He makes a case. Those getting rich out of exploiting their fellow Jews. Those who were charging interest to fellow Jews, which, by the way, was against Jewish law. And it gives that, that charge gives him a reason to bring the public together to deal with the situation. The nobles and the officials may really not have had any interaction with the people that they are exploiting, but now they have to meet them face to face. And he sets out the case before them. They'd been buying back Jews who had been sold into slavery to Gentiles. In Jewish law, a kinsperson was responsible, was obligated to redeem or buy free their family members who had gone into slavery. You know, that's why the word redeem is so much part of our Christian faith. Christ has paid the debt for us and bought us free. He is the great kinsperson who has redeemed us and set us free from that slavery to sin and death. And here, in a very practical way, this is what they were doing. And Nehemiah would have been part of that. It seems that he was a benefactor and investing and buying people back, only for them to be sold in slavery again to their own people. Almost seemed like a scam. Nehemiah's buying them back. Let's sell them into slavery again. And he uses two reasons for them to stop their their practice. That is that it goes against God's law, and also that it shamed them before the neighbouring uh, people around them. You know, it, it, it showed them again it was a bad witness to God's presence with them. They were God's people and should live like it. And then he acknowledges that he and his brothers had also been lending money and grain. And he tells them then, we should stop this. His solution is not to simply stop charging interest, but to give land and food taken in payment back. To give back the interest they had charged. More than that, to set aside a percentage of the crops that they had and the wealth that they'd taken to care for the people. You know, Nehemiah calls them back to the spirit that was behind the law all the way through. His focus is, uh, you know, it's not just simply, because they would have probably been able to say, we're keeping the Jewish law as a minimum, but, but Nehemiah calls them to the spirit behind the law. The reality is that they are family. They belong together. They are brothers and sisters. And therefore, they should treat one another like that. And the people agree with him, and they will give the money and land back and stop the exploitive practices. And then in another, let's get this in writing moment. Nehemiah's really good at those, isn't he? You know, you've said that, but let's get it in writing. Nehemiah calls the priests to make them take an oath that they will do it. And Nehemiah acts in a prophetic way at that moment. He symbolically shakes out his robes to show people this is what God will do to those who do not give back. That it's kind of like every last coin 
will be shaken out of their pockets. I don't know if you've ever been desperate enough to find change in your pocket for something. Well, they won't find any. They'll, all their pockets will be turned out and empty if they don't do what they said. And this section finishes with the whole assembly shouting, Amen! And praise the Lord. There's a renewed sense of being God's people together, of God's presence, God's justice, and them being a community. And then the last section acts as a reflection by Nehemiah about his time as the governor of Judah. In fact, it's only now that we learn that the king had sent him to be the governor. And he was governor for an initial period of 12 years. And you know, it's a really, it's interesting, we only hear this after he's dealt with the issue. Because you think as the Persian official, he could have just gone, you'll do this because I said so. And have you met my troops? But he doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't strong arm them. He relies on, uh, you know, uh, telling them about their relationship with God and with one another as a community. This section, however, in Nehemiah, almost sounds like he's defending his behaviour when he was governor. We see his integrity and his compassion and his generosity and his hospitality. We see his faith in action. He wasn't like the other governors who took a salary from the people, including a food allocation. Rather, out of reverence for God, not the Persian customs or king, he devoted himself to the work on the wall. Leadership is about service. It's not about uh, privilege and perks. You know, and we see this generosity that has. And maybe that's some of the reasons that Sanballat was upset about Nehemiah coming as Judah had been governed as part of Samaria beforehand. And well, he'd have been one of the people with his hand in the cookie jar, getting the money out. And we see Nehemiah's generosity out of his own pocket. Uh, and Nehemiah and his family must have been wealthy. They must have been landowners. But they supply food, not only for themselves, but also for people and the officials and visiting foreigners so that he would not be a burden on the people. And each day, it seems he fed over 150 people. And uh, we have what was on the menu, which is great. Yeah, and he finishes by asking God to remember him for all he's done for the people. Okay, what is there for us from this passage today? Three quick things. Firstly, uh, Nehemiah is a model for us of how to react to the injustice of the world and to be part of God's solution. Firstly, he's willing to hear the voices of those in need. You know, he could have been very easily cut off in his governor house and not hear those voices. But he hears and he listens. And then we notice that he reacts Initially, it's that he reacts emotionally to the problem. He feels for the people. He feels indignation about the injustice. But also notice that he does not act out of that. You know, there's no reaction here. There's no sort of swift retaliation. Like in chapter 1, we see him take time to process that and to go beyond simply reactions to carefully considering the issues it doesn't say that he prayed here, but you know from what we know of Nehemiah that it would have been a matter of deep prayer for him. He carefully considers the issue and possible solutions. And he puts together a case against the nobles and officials. 
one they cannot refute. Only then does he act. Um, and very often we will uh, not get past the emotive response stage. And in our world it's very easy to have an emotive response triggered by injustice because we see it on our news every night. Every night we are confronted with a new tragedy, a new injustice, something different. You know, even this week, you know, all the floods and a whole lot of things. And it triggers an emotional response within us. Again and again and again. And what that does to us is something called compassion fatigue. We simply get worn out. Uh, by being triggered and not in actual fact being able to get, be, get beyond that to acting. Nehemiah does go beyond that. He looks for solutions. And I think it's important to see that he first looks to his own actions as well and is willing and able to confess that he's been part of the problem. You know, repentance, that's the first reaction of a Christian. Lord, show me how I've done things wrong. Uh, I've uh, had to learn how to deal with criticism and I find myself uh, giving myself room to emote. I'll get grumpy and react. But then I, I take time to ask myself the question, God, what are you trying to say to me in this? What do I need to learn? How do I need to repent? What do I need to hear in this criticism? What is the truth here? And how do I need to change? And God, help me. And then, if all the unwarranted stuff, you just simply flush it and deal with the stuff that needs to be dealt with. And Nehemiah is also willing to deal with the issue in public. Uh, it's interesting, there's no backroom dealing here. And he acts as an advocate for people in difficulty, providing them with a voice that can be heard by others. And it actually provides room for their problems to be heard something that as Christians we should be about. And he's also about finding solutions rather than simply attributing blame. And he follows through to ensure that solutions are active, actually achieved, not just voiced as a possibility. And as a leader, he also shows his willingness to set an example in his life. There's an integrity between what he says and calls others to do and his own life and lifestyle. Now, one of the great dangers of success and being in leadership is that you can start to believe that you're in a privileged position and you deserve more of this and more of that. It's yours by right. Sadly, we've seen a lot of Christian leaders succumb to that kind of thinking. Uh, and as I was preparing this message, I, I had a chance just to read a very brief bio of Desmond Tutu, who said one day he was confronted by a nun who told him he'd been a celebrity too long. And uh, it was impacting him and those around him adversely. And he needed to remember that he was nothing before God. And Tutu, to his credit, started to devote more time to prayer. And it was able to help him to turn his focus more to forgiveness and reconciliation. And that integrity is an important thing. And it was shown in hospitality and generosity for Nehemiah. The second thing is that nothing impacts a community adversely more than a growing rift between those who have and those who do not. A country, a city, a church. 
Nehemiah's focus was not just on the bare minimums of the Jewish law, but rather on the people being a family together. And in Christ, we have been made a family together. We are brothers and sisters. And we too are called to live out the spirit of God's law and the way in which we love one another and how we share what we have with those in need. Flourishing Christian community should be characterized by generosity, compassion, and hospitality. Church and Acts were able to declare that there was no one in need amongst them because they shared what they had. Paul had to remind the churches at Asia Minor and Europe that the social dividers of rich and poor, slave and free, insider and outsider, Jew and Gentile, male and female, did not exist anymore. They were to treat one another generously as brothers and sisters. They were family together. And you know, very often, this is where the rubber hits the road of Jesus saying, love one another. That care for one another is how we show our reverence and love and, yes, fear for God. And, you know, to our neighbours, it's one of the ways that we show the truth of our faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, I, I was really really love the way that you guys are so generous. Uh, over Christmas, when Lorne instigated a call for supermarket gift vouchers to help people in need, uh, we were blown away. We were um, inundated by generosity, uh, and we were able to bless so many people. It's great. Finally, Nehemiah invites us to step out of our church into those headlines that reflect, that are reflected in this passage, to step out of the church into what's going on in the world. To be a flourishing Christian community is to be actively involved in finding and being solutions to the same issues, the same injustices in our world and in our city today that Nehemiah was facing, individually and corporately. You know, um, a couple of amazing examples. You know, close to a billion dollars of debt was forgiven the poorest nations in the world by the efforts of the Jubilee 2000 uh, campaign, you know, at the beginning of the millennium, that was started by some Christians who decided that debt cancellation was so important. It reflects God's forgiveness to us, which we had in that parable today. And there are groups like CAPS, Christians Against Poverty, who help people get out of debt. But it also causes us to ask questions about the resources we have and how they can be used for those in need. Now, at the moment, we've uh, contracted Adrian Whale to look into how best we can use the business block to meet the needs of marginalised people here in Whangarei. It's a matter of great prayer, great research, great pondering. We're looking at what is most needed and how we can use what we have to meet that need. It's big stuff because, you know what? going to take the whole community, really is, not just here, the whole community to do something there. Our vision of being a flourishing Christian community is not an end in itself. In the end, it's not about us in here, but rather being out there. Because a flourishing Christian community is one that serves and cares for its community and its city. And you know, that is encapsulated in our name. Hope Whangarei. It's not Hope Church. 
Although there is hope here. It's about Christ into the city and beyond. Hope whangarei. Bringing the good news of Jesus Christ into the headlines of the day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm not going to shake out my, the folds. 